Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making yourself known to us. And uh, we thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring the, uh, the recording of, of uh, your work in, in, in our history, in our time, and uh, the work of salvation that was accomplished through Christ, fulfilled in him. We praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for your work of redemption. And we, we pray that you would give us soft hearts and open ears and open eyes and uh, a great receptivity <clears throat> to uh, you this morning, that we might uh, see our Lord Jesus Christ clearly, and we might have hope, we might have peace, we might have joy. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we are continuing our series in the, the prophecy of Zechariah, and this morning we have finally arrived at the second half of the book, the back nine, you might say, which is kind of funny because in golfing lingo, that's a way of saying the second half of a golf course. And in fact, Zechariah's second half begins with chapter nine. This is indeed the back nine. And if you don't find that a little bit humorous, well, then I guess I'm all alone. Anyway, we've come to chapter 9, and gone are the strange visions of the first half of the book. The woman in a basket, the, the strange-shaped lamp with the olive trees supplying it with oil on tap, the many different colored horses. And I applaud you for hanging in there as we slogged through these confusing chapters. There's a reason Connor Young preached twice during the first half of the book. As we begin the back nine, the, the lessons are no longer shrouded in, in visionary imagery. Like the disciples in John 16, we declare in our relief, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. We can more easily understand what is being conveyed in these chapters. And immediately out of the gate, it's clear that the message is hopeful. God is going to judge the enemies of his people. They will get what they deserve in return for their violence and greed. Justice will be served, and God's people will be vindicated before their oppressors, and not just the current ones either, but from anyone who has historically done them wrong. Nations like Tyre and Sidon, Greece, and the Philistines. In other words, God promises not just present and future justice, but past justice as well. The wrongs of the past will be righted, and the wounds of his people will find healing. Now, as Christians who have no beef with Tyre or Sidon, Greece or Philistia, how are we to receive the news of their demise? Well, we're to receive it with rejoicing, not because of the fall of these physical places, but because their fall demonstrates for us the commitment of our God to his people. He fights for his people and he heals their wounds. Even if we endure great suffering in the course of life, God is able to make it all right in the end, to satisfy our desire for justice, to, to fix what feels irreparably broken and lost. And this is good news to a people who are waging a war not against flesh and blood, but against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is how the Apostle Paul describes our enemies in Ephesians 6. 
We are not oppressed by the Greeks or the Sidonians. We are afflicted by spiritual forces of evil and the the cosmic powers who still rule in this world while God yet lingers a while longer to return and to make all things new and just and right. We are afflicted by the self-destructive habits of sin that have come from within our hearts, our bodies, and our minds. In the course of this world, we, we therefore suffer many afflictions, some mental, some emotional, some physical, some spiritual, some relational. At times, we have no one to blame but ourselves. Other, other times, we feel we've been taken over like a, a depression that settles on us. Sometimes we are victims of senseless cruelty. Oftentimes there's a combination of all of the above, but whatever the form or source of our suffering, God is able to untangle it and to make it right through rebuke, through reconciliation, or through the gift of rest. His commitment against the Philistines, the Greeks, the Sidonians, establishes a precedent that he will continue even after the identity of our enemy has changed. Zechariah says Greeks or Philistines, and we must do the work of translating that to our present enemy, the sin which clings so closely, set there by a devilish foe and fostered by us until it is a sharpened instrument of our self-destruction. Our sin destroys us, and yet in time we have come to view it as a friend, a friend we can't imagine living without. But God comes to set us free from the demons that tempt us and the dysfunction that we have nurtured. He will bring healing to his people. Returning to Zechariah's prophecy, we see in verse 9 that an individual emerges as a figure through which God will bring about this promised justice and healing. He is a king and he approaches on a donkey. He is triumphant and victorious, a warrior and yet a humble one. He will ride into town, take names and get to work defending his people. All the enemies of his people will be brought to justice. Then he'll set up a peaceful kingdom that will be from sea to sea, according to verse 10, to the ends of the earth. In Zechariah's prophecy, this kingly figure fights against flesh and blood. He wields a a spear as his weapon and a shield to protect his body. But again, how are we to understand the work of this divinely appointed man if we have no beef with Tyre and Sidon? If our enemies are not physical but spiritual, then how will this man fight for us? Also, who is this guy in the first place? The Hebrew people searched and searched for him. And in time, he showed himself. Now, there was this Jewish man about 2,000 years ago who made claims to be the savior of the world. He wasn't the only one who did it, making claims to be the savior of the world. But his birth was surrounded by many rumblings about what would become of him. But then he kind of disappeared for several years. And around 30 years old, he showed up again. And again, he drew all sorts of attention He spoke like no other Jewish rabbi ever had. And he demonstrated command over demons and the forces of nature alike. He healed people and he fed the hungry and he touched the unclean and he conferred dignity on the outcasts. He created quite a stir. And the question that kept popping up concerning him was, who is this guy? Towards the end of his life, he told us who he is. Not so much in word, but in deed. 
he mounted a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem. It was a day we now call Palm Sunday. He was acting out Zechariah 9 in order to tell us that he is the promised king of Zechariah's prophecy. He was riding into town to fight for his people and to establish justice. And the people at that time, just like Zechariah's audience and just like every other person who's, had, who's lived on this earth, had physical enemies, right? They had physical enemies. Theirs were the Romans. They thought this man was riding into Jerusalem to expel the Romans from that holy city that they had occupied for years now. But rather than defeat the Romans, he was bafflingly crucified by them. The king of Zechariah's prophecy wielded a spear. He defended his body with a shield. But this man gave his body over to be crucified and was pierced in the side with a spear to confirm his death. It looked like defeat from every angle. But it was only defeat if God's priority was delivering his people from their physical enemies. It isn't, though, not alone at least. He doesn't prioritize physical enemies alone, not because physical enemies aren't a source of of pain, but because they are a symptom of a much larger problem, the problem of corrupting sin that corrupts not just at the individual level, but on the national level. Our greatest enemy is, this, is sin that infects and controls us from without and from within. And we need to be set free from our sin, the author of sin defeated. But the only way to win that victory was, oddly enough, through death. This man whose birth was heralded by angels and years later made a stir in Israel was none other than the Son of God in the flesh. He made claims to be the savior of the world and his alone was true. His name was Jesus of Nazareth. As the son of God, he was sinless. As a human being, he was our champion. In order to win our freedom from sin and death, therefore the sinless son of God took our sin upon himself and gave himself over to death. And through his death, our sin too was put to death. In his cross, we find freedom. But then, like the Savior he is, he defeated death. He rose from the grave, escaping its cold grip. He rendered it powerless, and he has promised that he will fight for any of his people when they inevitably succumb to its cold grip as well. He will raise up his people and give them life and justice and rest, not just present or future, but in the past as well. In this life, therefore, we are forgiven. There's no condemnation to fear. And in this life, we have hope. Our death, or for death, our greatest enemy has been defeated. Our skin will sag. Our joints will wear out. Our eyesight and our hearing and our memory will fail. But God will restore all these things to us in the end. We do not need to run from death because it will be undone. Our king was victorious, and he accomplished victory on our behalf by passing through the humiliation of death into victory. Jesus is the king promised in Zechariah 9. Zechariah had no idea it would be him, but it was. He fights for us, his people. But I'm interested in going just one, more, one step further this morning and asking, why? 
Why did Jesus give his life to accomplish victory for a people who rejected him? Why did he fight for a people who put forth such little effort to resist lust or jealousy, slothfulness or pride? Why was he willing to be pierced for a people who avoid pain at all costs, willing to sell their birthright for a meal just to satisfy the pangs of hunger? Why did he remain faithful to a people with wandering hearts? Why did he do this for you? Why did he do this for me? I certainly am unworthy of such kindness. And Zechariah gives us the answer to this question in verse 11. He writes, As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Here we get another image of the salvific work of God in Jesus Christ. He pulls his people up out of a waterless pit, a pit where there's nothing to drink. Death is a certainty, but he pulls them out in an act of great compassion. No matter what imagery you want to use, God saves his people, and he does so because of the blood of his covenant. What's this mean, the blood of his covenant? It means that God has made promises to his people. He has promised things like what we have already heard this morning. He's promised to save his people from the condemnation they deserve because of sin. He's promised to rescue them from the grip of death. He's promised rest and life and justice and peace. He has promised to to meet all our needs, to make us holy. He has promised to never leave or forsake us. He has promised to make all things right for us in the present, the future, and the past. And all these promises he has sealed with blood, essentially saying that if he does not deliver, then he will pay in blood. He bound himself at the cost of his own life to the fulfillment of these promises. He would rather die than let his promises fail. And of course, that is exactly what he does. Jesus gave himself to death so that not one of his promises will fail for those who love him. Jesus is living proof of the enduring strength of God's promises. They're sealed in his blood. He does all these good things simply because he has promised to do so, and he has made those promises on his own life. But this answer only pushes the why question back even further. We now ask, why then did he make such promises in the first place? And why did he make his life the cost of fulfilling those promises? You must chase this answer. Again, Zechariah answers this question about God's motivation in the story of salvation. In verses 16 and 17, Zechariah writes, On that day, the Lord their God will save them, for they are the flock of his people. For like jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his head, on his land, his head too. Why would God enter into a covenant with such faithless people at the expense of his own life? Why would he save an ungrateful people? Because he delights in you. Because he delights in you. You're like a jewel that adorns his crown while he sits on his royal throne in the heavenly places. For some reason that finds its logic only in the heart of God, he loves us. You might point to the fact that we were created in his image as the reason for his love. 
And the fact that we were created in his image is significant. That's why Jesus did not become a puppy. He did not become a foal, despite the fact that these were beings in need of redemption too. But human beings alone bear his image, and so he became a human being. And we were also the ones through which the rest of creation fell into misery and decay. The dog and the horse, along with the rest of creation, are rooting for our redemption. Because the redemption of humanity means their rescue, their release from the curse that spread to them on our account. He became a human being because the redemption of humanity means the redemption of all creation. But the fact that we were created in his image actually made our rebellion all the more offensive. We have dragged his name through perverse and depraved deeds. And even those good things we have done have often been for our own glory. We gave him no reason to love us. And yet the book of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Christ endured the cross. The thought of a rebellious people restored to righteousness was such a blissful thought that he was willing to endure such great personal loss to make it happen. The limitation of a human body, the pain of death, the feeling of abandonment at the cross. He loved us. And so he made vows to bind himself to us and to seek our good. Those vows kept him in his love even when we became unlovable. He loves us because he has vowed to do so. It is a cyclical logic that lies behind God's motivation to redeem his people and to fight for them. He loved us, therefore he promised to always love us. And he loves us now because he made that promise. It's a beautiful circle of God's grace and love. You are beautiful because of his love for you. And he is beautiful because of his love for you. And both he and you become more beautiful when his love alone becomes your motivation in doing good. God has purchased your life with his love. And he wants to use you in his ongoing battle against the cosmic powers of evil in this world. He wants you to use you to establish justice, to grieve past injustices, and to work towards future justice. At the end of this war has been determined through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was victorious over death, and the death of death is a certainty. But our stories are not finished. Until we die, or until Jesus returns, there are still skirmishes and battles that rage in our bodies and in our world. A remnant of sin remains in our flesh and in our city. Like Judah and Ephraim in verse 13, though, he makes us his arrow. He bends us like a bow. He wields us like a warrior's sword. Every time we rebuke Satan, even in the quiet thoughts of our own mind, then we are like an arrow fired from the hand of God in his ongoing battle against the sin which lingers in our world. Every time we refuse to pursue revenge, the armies of God advance. Every time we apologize and extend forgiveness, the cause of Christ grows. Every time we stand up to injustice, every time we tell the truth to our own hurt, then God is glorified and his beauty grows. And the world will declare, just as they do in verse 17, what goodness and beauty are his. Look at the jewels on his crown. 
Look at what he has done with you and in you. You are lovely. You're lovely. And it's all because he loves you. May you grow more and more beautiful by his love. And may, may he grow more and more beautiful through your goodness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.